Do bugs get fat? Yeah, I don't know. The Very Hungry Caterpillar never told me about the fat cells. Welcome to Biologists Being Basic, a podcast where we talk about basic research, why we care about it, and why you should too. I'm your host and resident basic biologist, Robin Cake. Each episode, I'm joined by fellow UCSF scientists, as well as a non-scientist friend to ask questions, talk science, and have fun. This week, I'm joined by scientists Joe and Paige. Hey guys, I'm Joe. My name is Paige. And non-scientist Gina. Thank you for having me. For a grab bag episode where we surprise each other with internet questions, thanks Science Reddit, and try to answer them to varying degrees of success. Okay, so here's a question that I got off of Reddit, uh, posted by Miss April 2018. So question, how does a new mole start and develop? Does a new mole start out as a baby, meaning small bump, freckle-like, then become bigger until it stops at its actual grown size? Or does it show up one day fully grown? <laughs> huh. Well, I know they grow because one of the things they tell you to look for with your moles is increase in size and that um, can indicate cancer, right? That it's like ABC areas, border and color. So if the area is bigger than a pencil head or the border is irregular or the color is weird, then you're supposed to go see your dermatologist. So they must grow. But is it a baby is as there a, a freckle? Baby mole? I wonder <laughs> when they start. So it's, it's melanin pigment, pigment, right? So the melanocytes would deposit my. I right, know the answer. Roughly on the right yeah. <laughs> So, um, I mean, I would assume if it's like probably a collection of cells, multiple cells. So it starts out as one cell that's expressing more melanin. Right. Probably and the then melanocytes in, in this dermis. This cell divides and creates more cells, and then eventually it becomes visible to the eye once you have a certain number of cells. Gina. I have no idea. Baby no freckle? Idea. Baby <laughs> freckle. Um, well, what I Full think is... I, I think moles are spontaneous. I think... I think they come from a reaction of this... Uh, a reaction from the sun. So, I don't think a mole is born. Alright, so I looked it up. We're pretty close. Uh, there is a difference between a mole and a freckle. So a freckle is not just a baby mole. Uh, freckle is when there's a cluster of skin cells that produce more melanin, but they aren't melanocytes. So they're just cells that produce more melanin in a cluster. A mole is melanocytes, which can be darker or not darker. So it's not necessarily that they have to be dark and producing a lot of melanin, but that grow in a cluster uh, and instead of spreading out evenly throughout the skin, they just kind of grow in their confined little size area. Um, and yes, if they change or are changing color, size, or shape, that indicates, it can indicate that you have skin cancer. But oh, there is um, some moles that people are born with. So there's a small percentage of people that are just born with moles. And then most of your moles should develop in like the first couple decades of your life. And then you won't develop anymore. Whereas freckles can generate like kind of constantly. So that was, how does a new mole start? So maybe we got 
seven out of ten on that one. Yeah, like, that's a solid C. Yeah. Like, that was pretty good. Passing. (laughs) Passing. A little wrong, but mostly right. You got melanocytes and melanin. Like, I thought that was good. Should we talk about what that actually means, a melanocyte? Yeah, so... Uh, and you're probably going to know more than I am, like, melanocyte versus, like, keratinocyte versus whatever. Like, melanin is the pigment in your skin. So it's what brings color to, basically, your, <laughs> your skin. Or moles or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, melanocyte is a specific type of cell which also produces melanin. Um, in the case of moles, it doesn't have to produce melanin. Uh, it's supposed to be evenly distributed throughout your skin. Other than that, I'm not actually sure the difference between melanocyte versus like it makes melanosomes, but I don't, I don't know a lot about, uh, the, the difference between melanocyte and keratinocyte and all the different types of cells. But melanocytes are, are a minority of the cells in our skin, right? And then the rest of it is the, the... Which is why when you get a mole, it's like, yeah, an abnormal growth. Right. Yeah. Cool. If that makes sense. Now I know. I have so many moles. I, I have a mole, like 10 moles on my back. Yeah. I know. I just had my mole cut out. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how old oh, no. Cindy Crawford was when she first had her mole. Yeah, that's true. Um, young though, right? I mean, that Presumably. makes sense. Supposedly, you're supposed to get all of your moles... Pretty early. Yeah, what does it mean if you have new moles as an older person? Probably cancerous. Uh, okay. Oh, no. That's really sad. Ding. So, <laughs> oh, wait, can, can you talk about that process, finding out that... Oh, you... finding out that I had skin cancer? Yes. Um, well, it was a mole. Right? It was a mole, yeah. So, I... It's in my family, so I'm very aware of uh, skin cancer and the ABCs of moles. So, I go to a dermatologist fairly frequently, and I suspected that a mole of mine uh, was not good anymore. It had changed size and color. So I went in and, yeah, the dermatologist pretty much confirmed what I thought. They did a biopsy, and it turned out to be melanoma. So went back and got the rest of it cut out, and, yeah, now I am skin cancer-free. Wow. It's all pretty fast. Uh, skin cancer nowadays is pretty treatable if you catch it early. So as long as it doesn't go too deep, it's pretty easy to cut out. Um, and if it's not metastatic, then it's very easy to get rid of, uh, as far as cancer goes. Um, in terms of once it gets metastatic, it's a little bit more difficult, but there are the new treatments, like uh, I think they're antibody-based treatments that have shown a lot of promise. So, yeah, there's a lot of new treatments for melanomas to the point where malignant melanoma is not as um, I I want to say terrifying as it used to be, but uh, it's still scary. Um, but there are treatments available now, which is good. Mm, I should get checked out. I haven't seen a dermatologist ever. So if you didn't catch it, it just grows and grows and grows and grows. And then sometimes separates from the main cancer and then can go other places in your body, which is what Robin meant by metastasis. Oh my gosh. And that's when you really have to worry. 
Yeah. No, I liked this question because, yeah, none of us are skin doctors or skin researchers, but given my family history and recent uh, brush with moles turning bad, I really liked this question. <laughs> and I didn't know the answer. It's like, is it a baby freckle? <laughs> like, our freckles are all freckles, just little moles? I feel like no, but I don't know. Huh. So, live and learn. All right. Page. Yeah. Um, so I chose a question from Reddit user Tal21021. They ask, nice. can all animals with livers process alcohol? Do all livers function the same across species? Or are there variations of what can be processed and to what degree? Oh. That's cool. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if all animals can process alcohol i mean not all humans can process alcohol right that's what so i was thinking too I, so no as humans go we are animals right and we know alcohol, in humans that alcohol the enzymes that degrade alcohol in the liver definitely vary a lot across for yeah. example ethnic groups which suggests to me that probably there are multiple that different ways to process alcohol and that maybe that's if not uniquely human then at least uh, likely to be different across lineages. On the other hand, there are these awesome stories about like moose getting I was just thinking drunk about on this. rotted apples. Yeah, and... where like certain animals, certain insects too, will like ferment things to try like. I, so they must have the ability to do something with alcohol right. or. Um, and and there is this, there's this idea that. Um, the smell of alcohol helps attract animals to ripe fruit, right? That uh, that uh, alcohol is a lot easier to smell than sugar, and the yeast turns sugar into alcohol, and then animals will come and eat the ripe fruit, and that's good for the the plant also because fruit is is like an ovary, right? It contains the the seed, and so a lot of plants are counting on animals to come eat that fruit and then spread the seed to then grow more plants right to propagate before it rots because I, I would think that when it's fermenting and producing alcohol that that's a sign of it being like towards the rotting end right, of, its, past, of right, its maybe? life cycle but interesting yeah i don't know so i've convinced myself both ways now, right <laughs> yeah i would bet if i had to pick i would say uh no. i'm gonna say at least in mammals, that livers more or less process alcohol the same way. That's where I'm going to put my chip down. But maybe outside of mammals, it's less true. I've never heard of drunk birds. I might try to get my cat drunk. Maybe I'll, I'll run into such a For science. <laughs> for science. See, so we got to do I'll, experiments here. I'll pour uh, some wine in the dish. not advisable, I would say, right? Like, alcohol still basically a poison yeah, right. <laughs> like to us also we just happen to be able to process it faster in most cases than it poisons us right. i had a, a professor who used to say um kevin verstreppen would say that all alcohols are poisonous some just kill you slower than others <laughs> meaning ethanol the one we drink is yeah. you know, toxic over long periods of time and methanol right. will kill you in one session yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right well, What's what's the answer? You guys hit a lot of the major points that I yes. looked up in this answer. So 
Uh, basically, in order to break down alcohol, it requires a family of enzymes or proteins that catalyze reactions, break things down into different molecules. Um, and so these, this family of enzymes is called alcohol dehydrogenases. Joe, you mentioned alcohol dehydrogenases. These are often expressed in the liver, and so that's where usually a lot of the alcohol processing happens. All animals have these enzymes, but they vary in efficiency. A specific alcohol dehydrogenase, ADH4, um, got some attention in 2015 for being the reason why primates process alcohol better than um, some other animals in the animal kingdom. Um, and so, for example, ADH4 in humans, chimps, and gorillas processes alcohol 40 times more efficiently than orangutans. <laughs> and so these are all, like, primates. And so it's, like, interesting to think about um, how the common ancestor for the humans, chimps, and gorillas had a better like version of this gene than the common ancestor for the orangutan. Um, so there was a study done by some paleogeneticists where they basically looked at sequences for different species of ADH4 and tried to infer what the ADH4 gene sequence would have been for the common ancestor for each of these lineages, and then reproduced that enzyme in the lab, just expressing it, um, and then doing the enzyme kinetics to see, okay, does the Measure common ancestor for humans, yeah. um, gorillas, and chimps better actually perform better? And they did this experiment, and that's what they found. Is it that, performs better? Yeah, than it does. What we are now. So that's how they got that forty times better number is because that the enzyme from what they inferred for so the we common got ancestor. Worse? <laughs> no, I, no, I, we're still we're at that level. Yeah, okay. like humans can still process alcohol much better than orangutans, for example. Um, and what I found was really interesting was that they tracked this branch in the lineages to like 10 million years ago. And so this number 10 million years ago also corresponds with a shift in like the Earth's temperature. And they happen to know that um, chimps, gorillas, and humans, um, the common ancestor for that lineage, um, stopped looking for food in the tree in the trees yeah where fruit is fresh and started looking for food on the ground floor where fruit had fallen from trees and was therefore susceptible to rotting oh, susceptible really cool. to the like yeast yeah. and bacteria nice. that allow the um, fruit to rot and ferment and create alcohol and so the hypothesis is that that common ancestor who was eating rotten fruit either could process alcohol more efficiently or couldn't the one that couldn't was intoxicated, was not as good at finding food, was not as good at defending its territory, and therefore there was a positive selective pressure for the uh, gene that was better at processing alcohol. Oh, that's awesome. So it opens up this whole new ecological niche for a floor gatherer. And probably, yeah, I was going to say, it's probably easier to gather already fallen fruit, or like, yeah, if it doesn't poison you, by being fermented right. that you have like a selective advantage because you're like i just eat whatever falls on the floor and i'm fine like whereas this guy <laughs> has to go climb the tree and maybe fall out of the tree or get right. attacked by or at least some spend animal. all those calories getting up yeah there. that's, that's really pretty cool. cool and then i have one more example so there's actually an animal that processes alcohol much better than humans um and it's the tree shrew and it has a tolerance of an equivalent alcohol level of 10 to 12 glasses of wine per day. 
um, because the nectar that it's feeding on is really like fermented and has a high alcohol content. So the tree shrew is really good at processing alcohol. And it's actually not because of its ADH4, like enzyme efficiency, but rather something downstream of ADH4. So once the alcohol dehydrogenases break down the alcohol, you get a byproduct that um, can go through an alternative breakdown pathway um and humans like really don't express the enzymes for this alternative like further breakdown pathway and basically that byproduct of alcohol processing is breaking that down further with these enzymes that tree shrews have allows them to be able to so that probably more don't get alcohol. hung over either. I know, right? I, I was thinking <laughs> like, about like all the bad things that come with drinking alcohol. What the interplay like... with like tolerance and hangovers is, and I I don't really know. I it, it wasn't clear to me exactly like um, which enzymes contribute to tolerance versus hangovers, but it's interesting to think about. Um, like a hangover cure could be like <laughs> yeah. treatment, like just yeah. ingesting these enzymes. Ingesting yeah. Enzyme, yeah, enzyme G therapy for yeah extreme for hangover. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like hangover recovery. We'd have a robust clinical trial with lots of volunteers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think you guys did a great job of um, hitting like the major parts of the story, which are like alcohol de- dehydrogenase enzymes and also um, rotting fruit, fermenting and producing alcohol. Cool. Uh, so, Joe, next question. Um, I really like this one. This is from I'm playing The Sims on Reddit. He said, um, how do terrestrial animals reach isolated islands or freshwater fish reach isolated lakes? Sort of getting at the idea. Is there any follow-up to that? Uh, He said he was reading it, or she, I don't know. Uh, They said they were reading about the Cocos Islands and wondering about the lizards there. Also, there are extremely remote bodies of water, which are never connected to the sea, but they somehow contain small minnows. And uh, not written here, but implicit is that you can have the same species of freshwater fish in lakes that aren't connected right well the probably uh easy and less satisfying answer would be that they were once connected uh it in geological space uh, meaning either through a river i mean the earth has changed drastically since the generation of life on earth uh, in terms of like fish being in the same place, like that, I think can be attributed to the water used to be connected and now it's not. Um, and for, I mean, there's a long history of places that used to be fertile and have very lush environments and are now desert, the Sahara Desert being one of them. So, like, the earth does change drastically over time. Uh, for animals making it to islands, uh, that one, I want to say, that's tough. Because, right, the some islands are volcanoes that popped up. So there, it's not like the land was originally connected. Um, that one, I don't know. Birds, I think, were first to most islands. Uh, and then probably, like, um... I'm not sure. I'm not sure other than human intervention, how a non-bird animal would get to like a a volcanic island, an island that wasn't just like broken off from a coast or uh, due to water rise became an island. Uh, Another possibility that I'm considering is that um, a 
in evolutionary history, their common ancestor had the ability to swim, was able to swim to the island. And then this, quote, like, terrestrial animal, depending on how you're defining terrestrial, maybe lost the ability to swim or something so that it appears as if they just arrived there. But perhaps they did have some sort of vestigial ability to swim that they have since lost. Yeah. Or... Or fly that they've lost, like yeah. that things maybe were closer and they... Right, like the flightless cormorants in the, yeah, in the Galapagos. Yeah, like floated. <laughs> Not flow, but you know, yeah. were close enough. Um, but yeah, other than that, I can't think of... Like human intervention seems like the that big one, biggest yeah. one for how species get to remote places. Um, other than plants. I mean, plants have a much easier way of getting to islands and... Because seeds, seeds can be dispersed, can be dispersed in the air, by the wind or, or by birds, or float on the water. Uh, yeah, so animals are tougher. Gina, you have any ideas? Built canoes or something? <laughs> <laughs> float on a log, maybe? All right. If I was to guess, there's no way they, they could swim to these islands, right? I mean, Maybe. I think that's a good that's answer, answer, right? That yeah. A lot of animals you know, might Some, swim yeah. better than you think. Right? Isn't there... Uh, there's a pair of foxes that swim to the... Um, what it was that island off of LA? Catalina, right? And Catalina, so there's now yeah. uh, oh, foxes right. in Catalina, but they're all descended from this one pair uh, that managed to get there. No, I think that's a, a great answer, and you guys hit a lot of them, right? The changes in the earth. and um, This was something that... Charles Darwin thought a lot about, right? Because if you're trying to convince people of evolution and not divine creation of things the way they are, but one of the big issues is how do we have the same snail in a lake in England and in France, right? Or the same fish in a lake or, you know, or uh, a shark in a freshwater lake that's not connected to the ocean, right? It seems like the easiest answer is uh, divine creation, <laughs> right? Spontaneous and, I, I, I almost said God, but I didn't. No, I had to stop I, myself. But that's an okay. Yeah, that's not I mean, a, I think that's or, or transportation. It makes like where they also a good answer. <laughs> well, so and and so Darwin was struggling with this, and he wrote about it extensively. Um, and um, and I just want to read one little block from Origin of Species because he does some cool things in the way he thinks about it and tries to convince people, and actually does some experiments, which are uh, I'll let you hear. So. Um, so some species of freshwater shells, he's saying, have wide ranges, and, and because they are allied species, similar species, or the same species, they have to have the same common ancestor for, if we're going with evolution. He writes, uh, their di- distribution at first perplexed me much, as their ova are not likely to be transported by birds, and the ova, as well as the adults, are immediately killed by seawater. This is a freshwater mollusk mm-hmm. he's talking about. Uh, I could not even understand how some naturalized species have spread rapidly throughout the same country. But two facts which I have observed, and many others no doubt will be discovered, throw some light on this subject. First, he says, when ducks suddenly emerge from a pond covered with duckweed, I have twice seen these little plants adhering to their backs. Uh, And it has happened to me in removing a little duckweed from one aquarium to another that I've unintentionally stocked the one with freshwater shells from the other. Uh, So, like you're saying, that other animals can can be agency if they can fly or or move. Um, And then he continues, uh, but another agency is perhaps more effectual. I suspended the feet of a duck in an aquarium where many ova of freshwater shells were hatching. And I found that numbers of the extremely minute and just hatched shells crawled on the feet and clung to them so firmly that when taken out of the water, they could not be jarred off. 
though at a somewhat more advanced age, they would voluntarily drop off. These just, has, just hatched mollusks, though aquatic in their nature, survived on the duck's feet in damp air from 12 to 20 hours. And in this length of time, a duck or heron might fly at least six or 700 miles. And if flown, if blown across the sea to an oceanic island or to any other distant point, would be sure to alight on a pool or rivulet. So the idea being um, yeah, that, that he does this experiment where he tries to grow these mollusk babies on duck feet that he just, I guess, has and puts in his aquarium and then takes them out of the water as if the duck is flying and shows that the mollusk can still survive and spread to the next pond or pool. So cool. um, and I love the idea, you know, this is I like the, idea the that 1850s duck. or earlier. <laughs> He's just like, okay, little ducks, yeah. put your feet in the water. But he's doing this experiment to try and convince himself. All right, I give you guys a 10 out of 10 on that question. Nailed it. Nice. There you go. User, I'm playing The Sims. Gina, did you have another question? I have a question, but no answer to the question. All right, let's go for it. All right, let's see how we do. Do bugs get fat? Yes. Cool. (laughs) No. Let's see. Uh, I mean, like, when we say fat, do we mean are there bugs that are larger than average than the average bug? Or like they just look chubby because there's a lot of chubby looking bugs. Or do we mean they actually grow fat cells and have fat deposits? Yeah, I don't know. The very hungry caterpillar never told me about the fat cells. I think it's hard to conceptualize fat for an organism that wouldn't have like adipose tissue or whatever. Yeah, like I think there's a lot of bugs that look Larger. chubby and or round. Like, They're very. I guess dense. you could you could test whether an insect consumes more calories than it expends, right? Because that could be a way to. Do insects have fat cells? I don't know. So I'm thinking about lobster, right? When you eat a lobster, sure, it has fat. Is that fat? I mean, fat there's deposits. a lot of cholesterol in it. Which point. is not quite the same as as like lipids get fat. fat, but so all right, so we we can say that they're not gonna like have the same kind of body changes with fat that we do because the skeleton's on the outside, yeah. right? An exoskeleton is gonna limit the shape of the body at least until it molts. Um, I would but assume they have some lipid based. Yeah, there's a variety storage, of right? different sizes of an insect, yeah. and my guess would be that in. I mean, the purpose of fat is to store energy right. for when you do not have access to high-calorie food or other sources of energy. So my guess is that there must be some way for an insect to store additional energy deposits somewhere, and lipid or fat is the most logical easiest way yeah, uh, at least in us it's the highest like calorie density so like if protein like, wouldn't be a, a good place to be storing energy just right, because it's probably not. not an energy and if i was uh if if i'm a caterpillar going into my chrysalis i'm gonna need lots of, of calories stored up so probably there's something like fat in there are times when they accumulate this fat-like substance. And I'm going to put my nickel down and say that, yeah, they do have fat because lobster is delicious. 
Although that's aided a lot by butter. Which is delicious. Added fat. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Huh. This is a cool question. Yeah. It says insects. So this is off of Reddit. Oh, I should have read the answer. Uh, read the answer, <laughs> yes. And, and, and gave a credit to Ikea Water Bottle. That's the user. Nice. Um, insects have an organ called the fat body. All right. I might need some help reading here. But it says... Lipid, or do you want to read it? Sure. Okay. Insects have an organ called the fat body. Lipids, fats, are stored in adipocytes in the form of triglycerides, same way mammals store fat, essentially. These lipids are consumed during periods of high energy demand, like when flying, and are replenished in periods of food abundance. Some insects have been shown to increase the size of the fat body in the winter as a mechanism to enhance survival. Other insects, like houseflies, don't seem to be able to store extra fat. Cool. Interesting. Hmm. So a mix. So there maybe are some fat-proof <laughs> insects. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if it's like uh, connected to their lifespan. Like if they don't live long enough to need fat, they just don't <laughs> the store <housewife>. it. <laughs> They're like, I live for twenty-four hours. No yeah. need. That's right. <laughs> They're not going to see a winter yeah. versus a summer. They're just going to. I'm call just going to reproduce, and that's my day. <laughs> day in the life of a fly. Yeah, maybe. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed our best attempts to answer questions from Science Reddit. If you want to learn more about any of the topics we discussed, please see our episode notes for links to additional resources. In our role as scientists, we always aim to be as accurate and precise as possible while still communicating plainly. But we know that as humans who like to have fun when we talk about science, we can sometimes fall short. So if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about what we said in today's episode, or if you just want to say hi, please reach out to us at biologistsbeingbasic at gmail.com or at biosbeingbasic on Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and we will do our best to respond. And if you like this episode and want to hear more, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In these tough times, we want to extend a huge thank you to all the first responders, emergency personnel, and heroes who are protecting us. Thank you to every person who is doing their part to keep us safe, to feed us, to heal us, to keep our daily lives running, and to help support researchers and medical professionals who are working to combat the ongoing pandemic. Thank you to everyone who is doing their part in remembering to wash your hands, in keeping up social distancing, and in wearing your masks when you're out in public. We know that times are hard and confusing, so thank you so much for doing what you can to help, and please stay safe. As always, we want to thank Professor Devin Kurgan, who is our boss and the director of QBI, and we want to thank UCSF and Gladstone Institutes, who are our employers. I would like to thank my fellow B-Theory hosts and team members, Paige, Joe, and Gina, for joining me in this grab bag style episode, and especially thank you to Alexa Rocourt and Michael McGregor, who are our sound engineers and producers. Our music has been Catalyst and Passport from Purple Planet Music. We hope you join us next time when we talk about the common cold. Eventually, we're going to get good at this, like, hopefully yeah. enough to where we just record in like, one go. This is impossible to edit. I like how you drifted from bugs to crustaceans. It's like, it's, well, it's basically the same thing, right? Lobster <laughs> and insects. Similar. I mean, they have, yeah, exoskeletons. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought, It's too. the bug of the ocean, right? <laughs> what bug is bug of the ocean? Chicken of the sea. Chicken of the sea and the bug of the ocean. Mm, it's the lobster for you.